A short disclaimer to those of you listening. The terms Indian, Native American, and Indigenous peoples are used multitudes of times throughout this podcast. None are meant to be used in a derogatory way, and it would be appreciated if you did not see it as such. Thank you. This is the OEA Final Unessay Project, and today we are talking about the history of Native American land issues in the United States. Where this story really begins is in the colonial period, whereby settlers came to the east coast of the United States and staked their claims to those areas. Settlers had originally tried to keep a peace with the Indians as they relied on their expertise of the land and agriculture to make it through the new climate, but this did not last long. Soon, Conflict arose between settlers and indigenous peoples over land in various territories. Issues with the Lenape in Pennsylvania, the Potawa in Virginia, and the Wampanoag in Massachusetts are only a few examples of disputes between natives and the new settlers, not just arising from land problems, but also trade disputes and the ongoing ravaging of the Indian community from diseases brought by the immigrants. These earlier disputes eventually migrated on the East Coast to a new battleground, the courtroom. After the revolution and ratification of the Constitution, Indian land disputes were largely fought in litigation rather than battle. Although conflict between settlers heading west and natives did arrive, these legal battles can be seen as an ever-growing constriction on Indian land rights in the east and involuntary movement out into the western part of the United States. More recent revisionist histories have described this influx of settlers and subsequent turmoil that the Indians endured as a path of greed and destruction. One of the earliest and most important of these court cases in which Indian land was up for dispute was that of Fletcher v. Peck, 1810. Georgia had sold around 35 million acres of land to private speculators for a relatively cheap price, but a year later voided said land grant. John Peck had gotten some of this land and sold it to Robert Fletcher at a later date. Fletcher later sued Peck and stated that the contract he had received the land under was void, as per the state's rescinding of the land grant. Under this case, the court held that a contract was legally binding even if it were secured illegally. In the backdrop of the decision, however, was a decision by the Supreme Court over the rights of natives to their own land. The land that had been sold by the Georgia legislature had been largely Native American land, since part of Fletcher's argument had been that Georgia didn't have the right to the land claims in the first place in ruling in favor of Peck, the Supreme Court had also implied that the Native Americans didn't have a right to their own land. After Fletcher v. Peck, court cases disputing land ownership came in quick succession in the following decades. The next one of notoriety is Johnson v. McIntosh, 1823 wherein Thomas Johnson had bought land from Native Americans in the 1770s, and those same Native Americans sold the same tract of land to the federal government after independence was declared by the United States. The federal government then sold the land to William McIntosh, after which Johnson's descendants sued McIntosh to recover the land. In the opinion of the court, Marshall introduced for the first time in American legal culture the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine had been used by European monarchs in the past to provide reasoning to their colonization of land already inhabited by indigenous peoples, but had not been introduced in official United States law before. It reasoned that those settlers that had discovered the land during the 16th and 17th centuries were discovering it for their crown they were loyal to, unlike the Native Americans who only held a right of occupancy for the time being. This meant that in ruling in favor of Macintosh, the court said, that the indigenous tribes held no actual title to their land. 
with the primary opinion being that land transfers from Native Americans to private individuals are void. The importance of Johnson v. McIntosh cannot be overstated, as it began the trilogy of cases infamously named the Marshall Trilogy that would strip Natives of their rights. The next two cases in the Marshall Trilogy go hand in hand, the first being Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, 1831. In this case, the Cherokee Nation attempted to sue the state of Georgia as a foreign nation, wishing to have all laws involving the Indians voided, as they worked out that the state had no jurisdiction over them. The state of Georgia made the case that the Cherokee Nation could not sue the state on the grounds that they were not technically a foreign nation. The Supreme Court heard the case but refused to give an opinion since the Marshall Court judged that Indian tribes were not foreign nations, but that the United States federal government was the protectorate of these individual tribes, or a ward to its guardian. The next time a case like this one came along in the Supreme Court, they did rule on it, with said case being the third and final case to the Marshall Trilogy, Worcester v. Georgia, 1832. Samuel Austin Worcester had been arrested and sentenced to four years hard labor after refusing to abide by a Georgia state law that prohibited white men from living among Native Americans without a license. Upon taking his case to the Supreme Court, Worcester had coincidentally brought about Native American tribal sovereignty. Marshall had reasoned in his opinion that the relationship between the United States and the individual Native American tribes was that of nations. Georgia had no jurisdiction to implement laws over tribes, so those previously enacted by the state were void. Though Native Americans had won sovereignty from states, they still did not have claims to their land or control over a majority of their laws. While this case assured that no state would be able to meddle with Indian affairs, it did give the federal government virtually total control over the tribes. While these cases were being decided in the court, the federal government was making moves itself with the Indian Removal Act to push various tribes residing east of the Mississippi to new land out west in what would become Oklahoma and known notoriously as the Trail of Tears. The next few steps in Indian land theft come in the form of legislation rather than litigation. The Indian Appropriations Act of 1851 established the reservation system that would grow into the primary form of residence for Native American tribes. The act let the U.S. government put aside land to protect Indians from white settlers that were increasingly migrating out west. This earlier act set precedent for the later 1871 Indian Appropriations Act, which would put an end to the decisions by the court in Worcester that stated Native American tribes were sovereign from states. Now, under the new act, tribes were not to negotiate treaties with the federal government, a previous process that took a long time to finalize a result. This new system of reservations made it increasingly easy for the United States to claim new land for itself while shoving the Indians into smaller and smaller areas. One of the final legislative pieces to the puzzle that had been occurring since the 16th century involving Native American sovereignty was the Major Crimes Act of 1885. This law made it so a number of crimes committed by Native Americans on their tribal lands were punishable in United States federal courts. These crimes included murder, manslaughter, arson, and more. But it shows that the government did not trust the indigenous peoples to convict their own people according to the American system of law. So they took over control of the prosecution of these crimes from the tribes. The tribes still prosecuted Indians who had committed crimes not listed under the Major Crimes Act, working concurrently with federal courts to assure the punishment of criminals and giving natives some form of sovereignty. 
This is one of the focal points of McGirt v. Oklahoma 2020, as McGirt had committed an act of sexual indecency on what was argued was tribal lands. The final act that nigh completed the removal of Indians from the East Coast into a predisposed bubble out West was the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act converted tribal lands from being part of a whole to being individually owned by heads of households within the tribe itself. The allotments that the natives received were substantially smaller when compared in proportion to what their land holdings used to be. For comparison, by the 1930s, the Native Americans had lost over 100 million acres of land due to its allotment in the form of the Dawes Act. While there are numerous things that took place throughout United States history in regard to Native American rights and citizenship, the 19th century set the precedent for all that came later. In cases like McGirt, the 19th century is actually where most of the important precedents for the case took place and it is helpful to look back this far and reconstruct how we ended up at this point in history. Neil Gorsuch's opinion exemplifies how important history is to the current day in law and society itself, but that opinion will be covered next time. Thank you for listening, and hope you enjoyed.